Train, eat, repeat. The knowledge and know-how you need to live well. Here's your host, Tyler Ferrand. Hello, everyone, and welcome back into Train, Eat, Repeat. So happy that you guys are listening. I appreciate it. If you haven't already, please make sure after you listen to this episode, you go in and put a five-star and a review on iTunes. Plainly, plain and simple, the more reviews we get here on the podcast, the more it's going to get out to people, the more guests we can have on, and we want to bring those guests to you guys. And speaking of guests, uh, today's podcast is definitely not one to miss. So last week, if you listened to the episode, we talked about stress and are you actually managing stress or are you allowing it? Are you just sweeping it under the rug, hoping that it goes away? And one of the best ways that people always say to get rid of stress is to meditate. But what I tend to find is that nobody really knows exactly how to do it. So went out, found an expert, uh, got to sit down with Lordor Rinsler. Uh, he's been doing this for 20 years. Um, he's a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. He's written seven books on the topic, including his most recent book, Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times, which I think is just perfect for the world that we live in right now and in the, in the pandemic we just came out of. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Please let me know what you guys thought of the episode, and we will talk to you next week. I feel like I should have done that introduction uh, while we were recording, um, but I appreciate you having you on the podcast. Um, you know, it, it, I came across your work, and and you've written seven books, and you've you've been in all the major publications uh, for not just uh, your state where you're in in New York, but but for the world, um, and on major shows like Good Morning America, um, and and though for those of you that don't know you though, um, give us a little bit of your background and how you got to be doing what, exactly what you are doing. Sure. Yeah. So I have been teaching meditation for the last 20 years at this point, which is always a little bit weird to say out loud because I'm only, I guess I'm turning 39 soon. Um, and I was raised in a Buddhist household and that's sort of a big part of it that I, I was raised meditating from a young age and started doing retreats and longer meditation programs in my late teens and particularly, um, you know, 17 to 20 was this range where I was going away for months at a time here and there to, you know, I was actually thinking about it this morning. It's like, you know, there's something sort of bizarre in retrospect that that's sort of how I spent my youth was really, you know, locking myself up either in solitary retreats or going to large group retreats, which were largely silent and things like that. Uh, but when I was 18 years old, I ended up getting asked by some of the people that I was being mentored by to go ahead and pursue a teacher training. So I went ahead and did that and I've been teaching meditation ever since. So as you noted, I have done some books since then. I've started after college with sort of working in the Buddhist nonprofit world and then um, started my own nonprofit along the way called the Institute for Compassionate Leadership and then Mindful, which was a network of for-profit meditation studios, which were just sort of lovely business model, like a yoga studio, but for meditation in New York City we had three of those. And um, I exited there in 2019, not knowing that a pandemic was coming, of course, but uh, sort of sparing me some of the heartache of having to be the person that shut down those studios when they closed the following year. And then um, in addition to continuing to write books most recently with uh, Take Back Your Mind, which is Buddhist advice for anxious times, 
Uh, I've been doing a lot of online programs. I've been doing that you know, pre-COVID, but it certainly ramped up during it to sort of long Buddhist programs all the way down to sort of like intro five-week classes, one of which is happening starting in October. You know, it's completely free to the public. It's just a way out to get to learn the technique of meditation because that's, as you noted right before we started recording, it's very complicated. There's many types out there and it's sort of hard to sort of know where to start. Absolutely. And I, I think you hit the nail on the head in the sense that it's it's not very understood, but yet it seems to be the thing that everybody says is a great stress reducer, right? Hey, you should just meditate. Well, if you don't know how or what it is or what the purpose is, um, can you go into a little bit of just what meditation is for the, for the, the public that doesn't know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, in addition to everything else I do, I run teacher training programs. And one of the things I always find myself talking to these people about is like, you're now on the front lines of introducing what the heck this thing is, because so many people have so many misconceptions about it. One of which is, I should be able to do it once and either have no thoughts or walk out as relaxed as I would after a half hour massage or anything like that. When in fact, meditation is at the core just sort of getting to know the mind better. My favorite word for meditation in the Tibetan language is gom, G-O-M. That can be translated as meditation, but it could also be translated as become familiar with, familiarization. You know, the idea that we're just getting to know ourselves better. And sometimes when we start to get to know ourselves, it doesn't feel like a massage, doesn't feel relaxing. It feels like, oh my gosh, there's too many thoughts going on. And it's not that we all of a sudden have more thoughts because of meditation. It's that we never really looked before and noticed, oh, there's a lot going on in my mind. But the more we do that, the less overwhelming those thoughts become. We don't, for example, to go through one of the um, obscurations slash misconceptions, we don't get rid of thoughts, but the sort of almost like the radio volume. It's like we turn down the volume on them a little bit. We don't get so attached to chasing after every single one. And as a result, we're more able to stay present. So that's what people want, right? People want to hear about the the benefits. <laughs> Why should I do it? What's in it for me? Um, totally valid. And there is a lot of benefit to it, but in particular, it's around being more present. And I would also go so far as to say actually being kinder to ourselves. And as a result of that, actually learning to be kinder to those around us as well. So this is a big part of the meditation practice. Okay. Yeah. You had mentioned, or you had a quote in um, your book that the purpose of Buddhism is not to study it the actual practice of it, but to study ourselves, which is getting to the point that you're talking about, that people tend not to sort of tap into the thoughts that they're having inside their brain. What effect have you seen in, in, in people that you've worked with? You grew up doing the practice, right? So, but for somebody that, you know, maybe is 39 years old, never has meditated before in their life, they feel overrun, over anxiety, uh, just stressed to the gills. How hard is it to explain to somebody that they can control their thoughts or like you said, turn them down? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think that one of the pieces of education I often like offer to people is around, if it's not a massage, what is it? It's more of like learning a musical instrument or a physical discipline. So you wouldn't expect to pick up the violin and immediately know how to play it after getting a lesson once, right? It's sort of like, I got to go back a bunch of times. I got to also practice it on my own in the meantime, and then I get better at it. But we go from not really feeling comfortable holding it all the way over to playing simple scales, to playing simple songs. And then we're, you know, playing Beethoven. How did we get there? Well, we practiced it regularly. And the same thing in terms of the workability with the mind. 
at first it does feel a little awkward for us to sit there and say, you know, what is this even doing for me? You know, there's so many thoughts happening. And we, I get that. I completely get anyone who's sort of in that boat. But the more we do it, the less uncomfortable it feels in terms of like picking up the musical instrument. It's like, oh, this feels sort of natural to come back to the breath over and over again, for example. And then gradually at some point it's like, oh, I wasn't so reactive in that situation. Or I, I was a little less stressed out from that thing that happened earlier. Why? Oh, maybe it's because I've been meditating. And the effects are so subtle that it's sort of hard to pin them down in the same way that we would if we were like, oh, now I graduated onto a new song or whatever. <laughs> the musical instrument is a little bit more subtle than that. But it is really still sort of a monumental feat when we start to notice, oh, I'm less reactive. I'm less stressed out. I am able to be more present, more here for my loved ones. These sorts of things actually go a really long way in terms of transforming the flavor of our life, we could say. Okay. Yeah, I think what's fascinating about the practice itself is not just that you're trying to tap into it. And like you said, people want that instant satisfaction, right? I see it all the times when I work with clients. They simply are just looking at the number on the scale. They're not looking at the fact that they're sleeping better. They have better digestion. They have all these other benefits that came from them changing their habits. And to your point, you're basically saying that as you start to do it, though, and obviously there's there's a, a way to get started, which I want to get to with you is is how can somebody start this practice? Is it simply just sit alone and and do nothing? Um, but it, it once you start to realize what you can get, what the benefits are from doing it, that's when you start to really realize, oh, I, because of I've been doing this, I'm getting these benefits uh, that come along with it. <sighs> Yeah. And I mean, these days we have this situation where it feels like every other week there's some sort of brand new study coming out saying, here's why you should meditate, right? Like you alluded to this earlier. You know, if you meditate every day after a certain number of weeks, you sleep better. It boosts your immune system. It makes you more creative. It um, makes you more productive, more efficient, all of these sorts of things. And someone who's listening right now would be like, yeah, I want all of those things. One of the funny things is that, you know, while they're measuring all those very specific qualities, they are often connected to two specific words, which is stress reduction. And when you think about it, like meditation, that's what it does. It helps us have a different relationship with stress. Stressful things still happen in our life. That's just natural. It's normal. You know, taxes are still going to be due and rent is still going to be due and your family member is still going to do that weird thing that they do and all of that. Right. But we handle it differently. And of course, if we are not held constantly in a state of stress, yeah, we sleep better. Like, yes, we have more room for creativity and our immune system feels better because actually the body isn't held in tension. So it actually has more room to heal. And like, it's sort of a no brainer when you think about it. Like, yeah, when I'm not constantly stressed out, I am more productive. I am more efficient. I, dot, dot, dot. Like all of these things start to happen because I'm in a greater state of relaxation and peace. And that's what meditation does for us. But it does, as you noted, take some time to actually get used to it. Sort of an onboarding period. But after a few weeks, that's what they've scientifically found, which of course reiterates to all of us Buddhists who've been around for thousands of years going like, yeah, we know. But it's nice that Harvard said it too. Right. Now, you had an analogy, which I found interesting, which is right uh, along with what we were just talking about, how a glass of water it's clear. You pour it into a glass. And I don't know if you know the work of Dr. Shad Helmstetter. He's a, a big positive self-talk uh, guy and how everything that we learn uh, 
is comes from our past, right? Our, our thoughts, our uh, political affiliations, all of those things were basically subplanted in our subconscious and how the subconscious can be rewired, if you will, through these positive self-talk, much in the same way I'm sure you've seen the effect that, you know, how people react to stress and how they have an outlook on certain things can be changed through meditation. You know, do you believe or have you seen this where people have sort of changed their outlook or have been able to conquer demons through meditation? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that people can't study necessarily, right? Like, I don't think there's some sort of study coming out through MIT being like, you know, do people have the ability to love themselves more, right? right. I would love to see that be a study. I don't know how they would do it. But subjectively, right? Like, I talked a lot about the objective, like, yeah, here's here's what you get out of it. But subjectively, you know, having taught for 20 years, I've seen it all. And I've seen people say, my marriage wouldn't survive this pandemic if it wasn't for meditation, you know, and because it's actually making them more understanding and more patient. I have people who say, um, you know, I am just more present and I feel like I'm a better mother, father, godfather, whatever to these kids, because I'm actually there for them as opposed to mentally still logged in at work. I have people, you know, who have all sorts of things, you know, that, Yes, I mean, you use the word inner demons, but like they've actually been able to work through some complex emotional stuff that's come up in their life. I certainly have for sure. I mean, it's been a godsend for me. Um, but, you know, to circle back to the initial statement that I had there, there is this time back when we, you know, when we started Mindful, the network of meditation studios I used to run, um, the we would do something where you come in every day for the first 30 days. And you would then get your next month membership half off. Cool, nice financial incentive for anyone who wants it. But really, you know, most people would say, maybe even start there, but like they would eventually be like, yeah, if I'm going to get serious about meditation, I already need to do it every day and this is going to hold me to it. So, you know, one of the teachers was saying, you know, like I'm a little tired of just saying, why should you meditate? And you can imagine that they're teaching all the time. Like they're not sales jobs. Like that's not what they're there for. So she said, you know, is there anyone here who's done the 30 day challenge? And this guy raised his hand at the back and she said, all right, you tell us, why should anyone meditate? And he said, well, it's a good question. You know, I don't know if I'm X percent more present. I wouldn't know how to measure that. But at the age of 56, I do think that this is the first time in my life that I actually have the tools and knowledge of how to love myself fully. And when I heard that, it brought tears to my eyes because it is that it's like, that is an immeasurable benefit and a benefit. Hey, I still know this person. They're still in my life. And you know, they, it's been so wonderful to watch them transform into this just softer, sweeter version of themselves because they've been working those tools consistently over time. Um, it's really, it's, it's just a joy and an honor actually to watch the transformation that happens when people really do commit to their meditation practice. And a little bit of a, a, a self-realization, if you will, like never knew that they had that issue. Um, so maybe even meditation can bring some things to the forefront that are important that maybe you didn't feel were important because you were running around all the time. Yeah, it's exactly that. And there's some very self-aware people who basically are like, <laughs> you know, I don't know if I want to start meditating because I don't know what I'm, what I'm going to discover. And, you know, I'll go to the opposite extreme that there are people who, you know, have done work with me or other meditation teachers and they say, oh, there are some parts of my life that have been making me really unhappy that I've just sort of been actively ignoring. Hmm. And now it's really hard for me to ignore them. 
and that's where, you know, they use the term inner demon, stuff like that. You know, that's where the big change comes. Whereas like, actually, if I'm being honest with myself, this is marriage isn't working. This job isn't working, whatever it is. And, you know, it does cause some tumult. And then they ultimately, you know, I've never seen anyone come out the other end uh, less than really happy that they made those decisions. But it's sort of like there are so many things that we aren't aware of that's happening in our life that, you know, just shining the flashlight around our own mind, we say, oh, F, you know, like I actually got to deal with my relationship to my mother or my relationship to my spouse or whatever it is. And it does make us happier and healthier long-term, but it's a little scary. And I think that's part of the issue. You know, I, I don't blame anyone for being like, I don't know if I should want to meditate. Chogun Trungpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan Buddhist teacher, once um, said, it's best not to start meditating, or if you do start, you have to go all the way. <laughs> I sort of love it. It's like the old matrix thing of like the red pill versus the blue pill. Like once you right. take it, you can't really stop looking at your own mind. It's just there. And it's better to actually have a better relationship. So to become familiar with the mind, as I mentioned before, uh, allows us then the opportunity to go to the next step, which is befriend the mind. And that's where it gets really interesting. So you meet someone at a barbecue you know, it's sort of late barbecue season here, but you meet someone at a barbecue and you're sort of curious about them and they're curious about you and you start to form a relationship and get to know each other. And then you start to spend more time, you know, you go out to coffee, you, you know, hang out at each other's houses, so on and so forth. At a certain point, you realize that you've befriended this person. They're not your friend. And the weeks turn into months, turn into years. And you look over your shoulder and you say, oh, I love my friend. How did that happen? It's because you were spending time getting to know them. You weren't a jerk to them. You were just sort of inquisitive and generally understanding and wanting to see what's there. And that's exactly what we do with meditation in our own mind, that we get to know it better. We meet it at the barbecue. We start to get inquisitive about it. What's going on here? Get, you know, to understand it better, to become friends with ourselves more. And then it does have this gradual transformation. Oh, actually, I really love myself in a better way, in a fuller way, because I've actually just been spending more and more time with myself in an authentic way. Do you think people come up with excuses like, I just don't have time? That's the number one thing that I get when I'm coaching somebody. I don't have time to make healthy meals. I don't have time to exercise. Or is it more so, like you pointed out, the fear of what they might find by doing that practice? Sorry, is the question, and there's some background noise here, is the question around the fear that people have in starting a meditation practice? Yes, because it, so a lot of times people will say, I don't have time to do that, right? I don't have yes, time to sit in silence. Or are they not doing it because they're fearful of what they might find? Yeah, it could be both, you know, and I, I totally believe in the sense of, oh, I'm too busy. Um, and that feels like an obstacle. And yet those same people, of course, I mean, not to cast aspiration or cast a uh, shade on anyone, but there is some sense of like, do you, how much time do you spend on social media a day? How much time do you binge watch Netflix? Like 10 minutes a day is what I generally encourage people to start with. And it's really hard for people to argue with me that they actually don't have 10 minutes a day. You know, I have meditation students who get up before their kids and then they sit down in the other room and their kids have this incredible radar and they wake up and they run and they fight over who gets to sit on what knee of mom's lap and they still meditate 10 minutes a day. You can meditate 10 minutes a day. Like I, I really, I think we all have it. So I, I do think that is a little bit of a BS thing, but instead of sort of like a deep fear of myself, it's sort of, 
yeah, I often feel like it's because people feel defeated that they think that they shouldn't have thoughts. And in fact, the matter is mm. they sit down and they say, I have so many thoughts going on in my head. Something must be wrong with me. Not that the practice is wrong or bad. It's like, it won't work on me. You don't understand, Lodro, how busy my mind is. And someone's probably listening and thinking that right now. You know, I'm too busy for this. My mind is too busy is another way of saying that. Mm-hmm. And it's not. Like, I, I would love to call BS on that for every individual I encounter. But of course, I try to be kind about it. But there is some sense here of like, that's just the starting point. And, and you know, about a year and a half ago, I started picking up a new physical discipline and I was lifting heavy weight. And I, the coach said, how did that feel? And I said, it feels totally awkward. <laughs> you know? Right. And he, I was just being honest. He goes, you know, how many times have you done that in your life? I said, including the three times you just had me do it, three. And he goes, yeah, then of course it's awkward. And that's sort of how I feel about everyone starting meditation. It's like, what did you expect? You're just learning something brand new. And it shouldn't, it doesn't feel like it should be a difficult, but it's like learning anything. The more we do it, the easier it becomes. And we just have to get there. So I do think that, yes, to answer your question, there is some fear there, but I, I often think that it's like not deep fear, but more of just a sense of like, ah, uh, maybe something's wrong with me because I have so many thoughts. And I just want to cut through that and be like, we all have thoughts. Asking the mind to stop thinking is like asking the heart to stop beating so loud. It's like, oh my God, how annoying is that? It's like, well, no, that's what it does. It beats. The mind generates thoughts. It's just what happens. How much we buy into it, how much attention we pay to every anxiety-producing thought along the way, that's where it gets interesting because that's the choices that we can actually make. Where do I spend my mental energy? It doesn't have to be on that. And I think so many times we're taught to that stress is good, that, that we need to work harder and we need to strive to get to the top. And, you know, if you're a mom, you need to put yourself on the back burner and, and nothing's more important than taking care of your children. And you'll worry about yourself later. Whereas in my line of business, what I find is that the longer you do that, the more your health deteriorates. And I'm sure the harder it is to get into a practice like meditation and then you're dealing with a whole trunk load of, of stress versus, you know, those smaller piles of it. <laughs> that's exactly right. And yet, I mean, that's the other part. People are like, no, I'm an old dog. You can't treat, you know, teach me new tricks because so many of us have decades of habitual patterns that have been keeping us lost in distraction. Even before, you know, iPhones were invented or any of these sorts of things, Netflix came around we still had ways of distracting ourselves. And I think we've just gotten even better at it in recent years. Then it's totally, you know, I always joke that it used to be when I first moved to New York city, you would get on the subway and if you forgot your magazine, you basically stared into space and you were there with yourself for however long you were on the subway. And now you can't find a single person doing that because we have so many modes of distraction that people bring video games, people bring phones, people, you know, have all sorts of things. Um, I miss the days of someone who's obnoxious and taking up three seats with a old, like a physical newspaper, you know, like I, right. <laughs> I find probably great joy in seeing that right now. Um, but you know, even then it's like, we're, we're just getting better at finding ways to distract ourselves as opposed to learn. Like we, you know, long car rides when I was growing up, that's the time that you just sort of stared out the window. You know, that's just not what happens these days. So I, I think we have less sort of societally carved out time to be with ourselves. And as you said, more of the sense of like, we've always had the urge, like societal whisper in our ear to be like, be more productive, do more, you know, accomplish more. Mm-hmm. But we've gotten so efficient at that, that there's never any space for us to do anything other than it. And that's, it's bonkers. It's, it's just not, 
good for anyone. And that's why we see so many people burning out these days. And I'm sure in the work that you do, you've seen it over and over again, that there are people who just at a certain point have not taken any sort of space for themselves. And as a result, just burn to a crisp. Mm -hmm. And they, they actually get ill because of it. Like sickness starts to creep in because they're not doing those things. How big of an impact or do you think that COVID had on our ability to be with ourselves. Obviously, we were in, we had all this technology, but you still have a lot of time in solitary at times. Uh, obviously, you being in New York, even maybe even more so. Um, to talk about the the impact and maybe the sort of the, I guess, saving grace that meditation could be for individuals coming out of this. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it was always it was interesting when this all started up that, there are some friends who I knew who were just very couldn't sit still. And I thought, gosh, this is going to be so good for them. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was, you know, those, then we had the baking craze and we had, you know, all the other crazes that came up and there's all sorts of things for people to sort of societally say, well, let's do something. Um, <laughs> TikTok took over. Uh, oh, but God. you know, <laughs> I'm just thinking of like things that seem to have emerged like new forms of like less societally like mandated, not mandated, but you know, like societally accepted forms of group distraction. Um, I had, but at the same point, I had a lot of people who very straightforwardly said, and I mentioned this briefly in terms of the context of people's marriages and things like that, but like, I don't know where I would be without meditation practice during this pandemic. And I had so many people early on who were newer to meditation, who, if not saying that, were saying, you know, I guess one of the things I'm realizing is that no one knows when things are going to change and go back to normal. I guess what we need to do is like, get really used to uncertainty. And I love that. It's like the sense of like, I don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know what's going to happen next. It seems like anyone does. It's groundless as a result. So could we become familiar with uncertainty as in this time? And, you know, there's going to be any number of moments in our life when we have uncertainty. We don't know if we're getting the promotion or not. We don't know if this person's going to say yes to the date. You know, like there's going to be lots of times for uncertainty. Could we get used to it now? so that we're not so thrown by it later. And then ultimately have more resilience and be stronger based on the fact that you can deal with ambiguity that way. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it has that sense of like, what do I mean? At the end of the day, what are we using our minds for? How are we attending to it? You know, are we making the choice to hold ourselves in a sense of stress and the, all of the stories, well, it could go this way. It could go that way. You know, if the pandemic does this, then I have to do that and so on and so forth. Or do we make the choice to sort of acknowledge those anxiety producing stories and come back to the present moment over and over again? Hmm. Was that sort of the, uh, reason for this latest book that you wrote? I mean, I feel like it's it's extremely timely. Um, everybody talks about anxiety, talks about stress, and obviously we're going through a very anxious time as, as a country. Um, and it, what was the whole like sort of reason behind the book and the motivation there? Yeah, thanks for asking about it. I'm often very bad at talking about my own books. Um, <laughs> so take back your mind 
You know, I read in the introduction, I believe, the, that I myself, even though I grew up meditating from a young age, grew up also with a lot of anxiety. And it's just, mm. I had social anxiety growing up. I had all sorts of work anxiety. And I very much, you know, was like, well, I guess the thing to do is try and problem solve. You know, let me use my brain as a problem solving device. And of course, over time, um, I realized that meditation is wonderful, but you also have to like work with your mind off the meditation cushion in order to really address some of the deep-rooted habitual patterns around anxiety and stress. So for me personally, it you know this was a many-year journey to actually getting to the point that I actually felt like, oh, I, I know how to work with the mind. I know how to actually really do this well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the inspiration to actually answer your question came out of just seeing how many people around me really were struggling with this. And it feels like this monkey on our back that so many people have, but are too embarrassed to acknowledge. Hmm. And they think I'm the weird one. I'm the weird one because I'm constantly stressed. I'm constantly anxious. And yet they don't realize that everyone else around them is going through the exact same thing. So, you know, in a lot of the books that I write, it's really like, okay, we need to have a conversation about these things. We need to get it out in the open. We need to actually talk about, some of these big societal issues and anxiety, as you know, you know, I sort of, I was starting the book, I was starting to write the book uh, and then the pandemic hit and then it just became a thing where it's like, okay, I got to get this out as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I took the time I needed to write it, but I really rushed the publication process along so that it could get out sooner rather than later. Um, and not like a year later, like months later than when it was actually completed. So the uh, <clears throat> book itself really is, current you know i mean it it's came out just a few months ago and it's really based in what are we going through right now what are we actually encountering yes through the pandemic but also as we were talking about a little bit earlier you know this time where i always joke that my father used to come home from work at five and if something really wrong happened and there's an emergency they would call his landline sure Maybe he'd pick up, maybe he wouldn't. But otherwise, he would come back on Monday morning or you know the next morning, mm-hmm. and he would pick it up again at 9. And somewhere along the way, we got these devices where coworkers, bosses, whomever could email you, and you could check your email and opt into that, or they could text you and it pings up on your phone, or they could call you no matter where you were. And none of us thought, you know what? We really need sort of societal courteous guidelines around what is good and what isn't good. You know, when, you know, I've run companies in the past, I was like, you know what? We never send emails after eight, you know, how about something like that? You know, even on the busiest of times, normally we don't expect anyone to get back to us until the next morning. You know, Mm -hmm. like there's some sort of like parameter, like no one should even be checking email at that point. There's nothing coming to you. Don't even look, you know, that's sort of like let people off the hook a little bit, but most of us don't have stuff like that. Most of us really have, this constantly on the hook energy. And that it also, in addition to pandemic stress and things like that, have just ramped up our stress levels from, you know, to the 10th degree. Mm-hmm. As I'm saying all these things, I should probably differentiate between these two terms I've been using a little willy nilly, which is stress and anxiety. So stress in the common setting is a sense of a thing happening, which actually brings about a physiological response to the body. So let's say your landlord knocks on your door right now and says, um, rent is past due. You forgot to pay it. And you realize, oh my gosh, I didn't even save up for it. And what am I going to do? This is a stressful situation. Meditation isn't going to be like, okay, now you don't have to pay rent, right? Like it's, you still have to do, you 
there's a stressful thing that arose. The landlord at no point says, I need you to stress every minute of the day between now and Friday when you get the money to me. There's no landlord that out there that thinks that that is a useful thing for you to be doing. They just say, give me the money. It is us that then says, I'm going to play out every possible scenario of what's going to happen in the next few days. I'm going to make the mental choice to keep spinning out story after story. Well, if they say this, I'm going to say that. If they do this, I'm going to do that. And then it has gone from a stressful situation to us holding ourselves in a state of anxiety about it. All of those stories that we're saying over and over again, well, what if this, what if that? That is what anxiety is. So when I talked earlier about a mental choice that we can make, the choice here is to actually train the mind to let go of these stories and come back to the present moment. In the present moment, we actually know how to be skillful. We actually can see reality for what it is. We can see it clearly and then act in accordance with reality as opposed to our confused neurotic ideas about reality. And that's what meditation really allows us to do. Like, I mean, I sort of gave the very generic open public pep talk earlier, like, oh, you know, stress reduction. But at the end of the day, it allows us to see things more clearly. And as a result of seeing things more clearly, we are more skillful in actually taking care of the same situations that arise. So that's, that's sort of the beauty of it. And if we're holding ourselves in a state of anxiety, constantly telling ourselves story after story, we're not going to be able to be skillful. We're just going to hold ourselves in a place of pain. So that's not a great mental choice to make. And I always you know, say, like, if I gave everyone listening the choice, do you want to be happy? Do you want to be stressed out? Every single human being out there would be like, I think I will choose the happiness button. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, no one chooses, like, uh, like consciously chooses to be stressed out, yet we fall into bad patterns and hold ourselves in states of anxiety. And we always do the what if. We always play that game. Well, what if this happens? And, and, what, and we worry about things that may not even happen, that, that anxiety drives up. And you had mentioned in, in your book that when those things happen, and, and more so you were speaking in terms of during an actual meditation session, when your mind starts to wander and go through those what ifs, to stop and say the word thinking, sort of explain that that process and how it can sort of, I, it almost sounds like that would be a good uh, sort of method for sort of quashing some of those anxieties. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, here's the meditation in a nutshell here, right? Like what do we do when I talk about meditation? I'm often talking about mindfulness meditation coming out of the Buddhist tradition. That said, Mindfulness is the act of being present to what's currently occurring without judgment. So we just are present with the breath. We're present with whatever is arising. And we do so without judging ourselves. I should have more thoughts. I should have less thoughts. I should be breathing differently. Whatever. We're just with it. The um, act of mindfulness meditation is three parts. One, we take a relaxed, uplifted posture. Two, we notice the body breathing as it's naturally occurring. Whatever we again, it's just presently occurring. And three, when we get distracted, we come back to the breath. And that's the moment at which we might even say to ourselves, thinking, just to acknowledge, oh, I drifted off. There's thoughts, not a big deal. Thinking. Now I come back to the breath. And that's it. It's a very simple practice in that way. But it's not always easy, which is why it's always helpful to actually work with teachers in a live setting. Uh, people are often like, what app should I start with? 
I feel like that's like we are so socially phobic that we're like, I don't want to have to talk to another human being. Just give me something to plug and play. And I get that. But the app can't say like, you know, when you say my knees hurt, the app doesn't go, well, let's look at your posture. (laughs) Like it just doesn't have the capability of doing that. So I do think that there are some things that, you know, it does really help to, to be around live teachers and the community to help support in that regard. Absolutely. Well, and, and, and community almost builds in that routine for you. I find that a lot of times uh, in the fitness space as well, if you're surrounded by like-minded individuals that are doing the same thing, going through the same problems, there's more reason for you to stay doing that practice versus you feeling like you're alone. Even though in this case, meditation is not necessarily a, a group activity per se. Yeah, that's, I mean, you know, my wife is fond of pointing out this the dis- difference between singing in the shower and singing in a choir. It feels different, right? right. It, you know, sometimes we have a lot of joy in singing in the shower. Sometimes it feels a little embarrassing or a little shy. Singing in a choir, there's a natural harmony that happens. And it's the same sort of thing. Energetically, it's like, oh, all these people are also working with their own minds shoulder to shoulder with me. And that's why it's really helpful to to have community support or teachers. There's some sense of, you know, I'm not just out here on my own doing it. And Phoenix also feel entirely less awkward. Absolutely. Yeah. So you sort of touched on it. If somebody were to uh, feel like this might be for them, that they should should meditate and we're not just going to say the word and say that, you know, I sat down for five minutes and now I'm good. But what it would be like the sort of starter guide for somebody who wants to just sit down and find time for themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think the next step for many people is indeed to, I mean, if you want to try an app, that's totally fine, but to try some form of meditation. And, you know, I give the instruction in all of the books, and I think that's actually enough for most people is to read the very simple instruction. What I just mentioned before is not complicated, to set a timer for 10 minutes and to do it. You know, just sit with yourself for 10 minutes and don't leap up when the mind feels busy. Don't add more time when... It feels like, oh, this is entirely peaceful. We don't want to not judge ourselves. Again, that definition of mindfulness, that we sit there without judgment. It's not good meditation or bad meditation. It's just 10 minutes of us getting to know ourselves. That's the important thing. Having a consistent time of day can be really helpful. So some people love to meditate in the morning, some in the evening. Wherever you can habitually put 10 minutes is good. But to build it as part of a routine can be really helpful. Like, you know, you brush your teeth, you walk the dog, you meditate. It's just sort of in there in the same way that you probably showered somewhere in there or put on clothes. You know, like that's just part of your day. <laughs> same thing here. So to build it into whatever pre-existing routines feel right to you. And to, there's no great time to meditate. The best time is really what works for you consistently. And to have an environment. There's an environment within which you can... Um, you know, just feel like this is where I go to meditate. That's the important thing. And it could be a corner of your bedroom. It could be your office. It could be any number of things. It doesn't have to be its own space, you know, its own room. Um, but something that's sort of waiting for you, because if it's going to take you 10 minutes to actually assemble the perfect meditation space, then you're not going to actually do it because there's your 10 minutes right there. So I, I think these sorts of things can be really helpful. And the last one I'll just mention is just pacing, just to sort of get consistent, like, you know, day over day, after 11 days, some of these positive habits are said to be a little bit habit forming in the brain. After 21 days, supposedly it's a fully formed habit. So it's not a giant commitment, 10 minutes a day, 
21 days, somewhere around two hours or something like that. So it's, you know, it's not giant to in terms of something that actually really can transform your life. It just takes that level of initial consistency to get there. Since writing your, your first book, what things have you learned about the practice, about yourself? Um, I, I always find it interesting because everybody goes through uh, a growth, right? You grow as you learn and as you try and you practice your craft. What are some of the biggest keys or things that ahas that you've learned about yourself or the practice itself uh, over the last few years? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things I've been thinking about in the last few years is less around just like, oh, we get to be more present or less stressed out. Although obviously, having just written a book on the stress aspect, it's an important one for newcomers. But the idea that what meditation ultimately reveals to ourselves, even in little glimpses, is our own wakefulness that's already waiting to be discovered. And that so many of us carry around this narrative of, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not, you know, worthy of my job, my spouse, my dot, dot, dot. And yet, at least coming out of the Buddhist tradition, but it's not even a Buddhist thing, it's just sort of human experience. When we get out of our own way long enough and we're just resting with the breath, we're actually just present. In that moment, we say, oh, fundamentally, inherently, I'm okay right now. I'm whole, complete, good as is. And that basic goodness is actually the real discovery. That maybe that's who we are. And, you know, the confusion and the neurosis is just sort of the clouds obscuring the sun on a, on a bad day. It's an interesting take on it. I like that. And that's how you get to understand yourself and self-acceptance and and maybe have less distractions or allow those distractions to influence your decisions or your actions. Huge. Where can, uh, what are you working on next? I know you just had a book come out, but any other projects coming up? Yeah, as I mentioned very briefly earlier, um, we've got this free online class that's starting up in October. And, you know, that's something that for anyone who is looking to get going, you know, that's a nice situation because there's also like live Q&A with me and things like that to help with whatever questions are arising as you experiment with the different meditation techniques that we'll be offering. So it's called Discovering Goodness and it's free and able to sign up on my website. And then in the new year, I start, you know, my fourth annual cycle of the Buddhist Immersion and Mindfulness Teacher Training, which is a five month long, it's two separate programs or someone could take them together if they are uh, qualified they've been practicing for some time and that's yeah that gives people really good in-depth i'm i don't know if anyone can actually hear see me in this (laughs) like i'm making this like big grand gestures like all of the things of buddhism it's like the entire buddhist path in five months uh which is a good really lovely uh fun program excellent where can people find you about information regarding those programs uh, all at lodrarinsler.com, which is, you know, that's, that's the main source. And if people write me there, you know, they also, you know, I, they get a response from me. It's not like there's some sort of secret team behind the scenes that are answering my emails from me or anything like that. It's actually me. Excellent. Awesome. Anything else for our listeners, um, as they embark on, uh, possibly being a little bit more, uh, centered, a little bit more in tuned with who they are as a person. Yeah, I feel like it's just sort of letting go of some of the stories of like, I can't do this work. You know, I, I feel like that the, some of the self-limiting beliefs that really hold us back are so painful. And just even taking the chance and the practice like meditation and giving it a chance for 11 days, it, even that is already life-changing. So just letting go of some of the self-limiting beliefs around like, this is just who I am. I'm an anxious person, for example. 
that's actually not the only person that's keeping you in that state is actually you in this moment. So letting that go will be really liberating. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and educating our listeners. And uh, this was great. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a real treat. Thanks for listening to train, eat, repeat. Connect with us on Instagram at fit underscore ferrant or at traineatrepeat.co. Until next time, stay strong, stay healthy.